Hi, I'm David Schneider for IEEE Spectrum's Fixing the Future podcast. Before we launch into this episode, I'd like to let listeners know that the cost of membership in IEEE is currently 50% off for the rest of the year, giving you access to perks including Spectrum Magazine and many education and career resources. Plus, you'll get a cool IEEE branded Rubik's Cube when you enter the code C-U-B-E online. Simply go to IEEE.org slash join to get started. I'm talking with Scott J. Shapiro. I'm very excited to talk to him about his new book, um, which uh, is titled Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, The Dark History of the Information Age in Five Extraordinary Hacks. Um, So, uh, Scott, if I can call you that rather than addressing you as professor. um, uh, Before we talk about your book, Tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, so my, I'm a professor of law and philosophy at Yale University. My primary appointment is at the law school where I teach legal philosophy. But like so many people my age, I grew up um, in the 70s and 80s where I got hooked on personal computers. My parents bought me an Apple II um, when they first came out used a TRS-80 at school in the in biology class and got really into coding and really into computers. And I, you know, I was a computer science major at, at Columbia University. And I had, a, um, I did, I had a small database uh, construction company, uh, but then gave it up when I, um, when I went to uh, law school and then graduate school in philosophy. And I just kind of, um, forgot that I had ever done that. And uh, from our earlier conversations, you told me about a class that you were teaching. Can you tell me a little bit about, since that, I think, leads into the book, about what this class was? What happened was um, my the book before Fancy Bear was called The Internationalists, and it was a history of the regulation of war over 400 years. So it was from 1600 to 2014 about whether you're allowed legally to go to war. And a lot of people were asking when the book came out in 2017, what about cyber war? What about cyber war? And so I got interested in what what about cyber war? And so um, at the time, uh, my colleague Ona Hathaway and I and Joan Fagenbaum from the computer science department, who's a very famous mathematical cryptographer, we applied to the Hewlett Foundation to get a grant to teach an interdisciplinary course on, um, you know, on, I think it was called the law and technology of cyber conflict. And so it was going to be half computer scientists, uh, computer science undergrad majors and half law students. And we would teach both of them the technology and the law. And one of the things about the class was um, it was the worst class I had ever taught. Um, I, I don't think anybody learned anything. I certainly didn't learn anything. Um, at, at any given point, uh, half the class was bored and the other half was uh, confused. Um, and what I realized was that, you know, law and computer science, those are both very technical subjects and the intersection um, is very difficult. And so I thought, wh- how would I teach students about this um, this new world of hacking and cybersecurity and how does it relate to legal and ethical questions we have and how should we regulate it and respond to it? The book, uh, the, the topics 
uh, the particular hacks that you go over in the book, they are things that you and your students looked at in depth um, while you were teaching this course, I take it. Actually, no. What, what happened was when I taught uh, the course, I really taught the students how to hack. Um, I taught this, by the way, with uh, two, uh, two other of my colleagues, um, both with extensive network experience and cybersecurity experience. Um, now we taught them, you know, the Linux command line, how the internet works, how packing switching works, how Wireshark works, how to do network um, reconnaissance, how to crack passwords. We, 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 I, I taught them, we taught them practical skills and uh, kind of theoretical conceptual ideas about how uh, our digital ecosystem works, how encryption works, yada, yada, yada. Um, the stories, um, I was doing research on those stories as I was teaching the course. And so the book is doesn't teach you how to hack. Um, that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is to teach you how hacking works, how hackers have hacked the internet, and what uh, what various types of legal, ethical, psychological, technical, historical um, considerations go into this practice of hacking, and how might we um, try to reverse the trend towards safer digital ecosystem? So you and I um, have worked now on uh, your article in Spectrum, which is based on a section of the book that covers the Mirai malware. Um, maybe you could just take a second to uh, mention the the other extraordinary hacks that are that are in the book. So the book lays out five hacks. Um, um, the first one is the Robert Morris um, hack, the Morris worm, the first um, hack that's kind of brought down the public internet in 1988. And the next is the Bulgarian virus factory of the early 1990s and the uh, mysterious virus writer, Dark Avenger, who created the first polymorphic virus engine, which genetically scrambles, so to speak, the code of every virus, making it very difficult for them to, uh, to uh, antivirus software to detect. The third is the hack of, of um, of um, Paris Hilton in 2005 when her cell phone, her sidekick was hacked and nude photos were leaked onto the internet. The fourth is where Fancy Bear comes in. Fancy Bear goes fishing. Fancy Bear is the name of a uh, lead hacking unit in the Russian military intelligence, the GRU, which hacked the, the Democratic National Committee in 2016 and leaked the um, the emails and various documents that were found um, uh, and caused um, real chaos and turmoil in the 2016 election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And finally, the Mirai botnet, which was created by three teenagers in order to um, basically get more market share for their Minecraft servers, but ended up uh, knocking the internet off um, for for many people in the United States. I'd like really to focus on the conclusion of the book, which you title as The, the Death of Solutionism. Um, so I'm going to ask you to explain a little bit what you mean by the death of solutionism. And, and also maybe you could tell us or 
define for our listeners the, the terms you use throughout the book of upcode and downcode. So let me first say what solutionism is. Solutionism is a term coined by the social critic Evgeny Morozov um, to kind of capture this idea that is part of the culture that, you know, all social problems can have technological solutions. Um, it's the famous example of solutionism as when Wired UK famous, famously wrote, um, you, you, you want to help Africa? There's an app for that. Um, you know, as if like an app is going to reverse, you know, centuries of colonialism and blah, blah, blah. Cybersecurity is particularly prone to solutionism because we're always kind of looking for the next generation firewall, the next generation um, intrusion detection uh, uh, service, you know, system, um, all, all these types of technological solutions and I, I the argument of the book is is that this is a mistaken way to think about cybersecurity cybersecurity is not primarily a technical problem that requires an engineering solution but it primarily is a political problem which requires a human solution and so one way i try to get at this idea which you might think initially is counterintuitive because what could be more technical than cybersecurity is the uh, is the idea um, of a fundamental distinction that I draw between what I call downcode and upcode. Downcode are literally all the all the code below your fingertips when you're typing on a computer uh, keyboard. You know, see your operating system, the application, network protocols, yada yada yada. Upcode is any is anything above your fingertips. So the rules that I follow, my personal ethics, social norms, legal norms. All those, uh, all those types of things, industrial standards, terms of service, these are all the norms that regulate our action and give us different incentives to behave in certain ways. You give some concrete examples of where you see, to use the metaphor, patching the upcode um, would be useful. Um, maybe you could, you could give uh, our listeners some examples of this kind of tweaking the upcode. One of the things that you want to do from a criminological perspective is you want to tailor whatever policy solution you're going to offer to the kind of problem that you're trying to solve. And in particular, when it comes to crime, you want to see what are the motivations of the offenders. Young boys in particular get into hacking through gaming culture and through a process of um, escalation start engaging in you know first cheat sheets and um and then um small little hacks and then they can blossom into blossom uh, transmogrify grow metastasize into real very serious criminality and so the idea is for to do in the united states what um law enforcement has done in the united kingdom in the Netherlands, which is to try to engage in uh, diversion programs, to, to try to divert uh, people who might have skills to be, let's so to speak, on the blue team on defense, but because of um, various types of social pressures, get pushed to the red team, get pushed to um, being attackers, and to try to change that. Another thing I just very quickly mention is, you know, there are there's no there's no as a legal matter, there's no software liability for uh, security vulnerabilities. So you can't sue Microsoft for, 
you know, putting out really bad code, uh, um, resulting in your being hacked. Um, and the Biden administration just released their cybersecurity, national cybersecurity strategy, where they are finally um, proposing software liability for security vulnerabilities. And I think that's a very important move. Why is that? I mean, the when I go and I buy a ladder uh, at the uh, big box hardware store, uh, if I fall off of it because it's faulty, uh, there's somebody I can sue. But why is it a piece of software that's faulty that can be do something much more devastating to me? There's nobody to sue. In American law and, and actually Anglophone um, legal systems, typically what will happen is um, when you sue somebody, you can only sue um, for like physical damage or pain and suffering that happens through physical destruction, but you can't sue for purely economic damages um, for, let's say, negligence and cre- or, or recklessness in creating bad, um, bad um, software, because economic damages are not generally recoverable um, in American courts. There's also, I mean, those are that's a technical reason, but like the larger kind of cultural reason economic and political reason is that the United States takes a certain view about technology. In the United States, we have this idea that we don't want to regulate new technologies for fear of choking off innovation. Same story was with the car. There's there's very, very little regulation on the automobile because the power of the United States was as an industrial uh, behemoth, um, and the idea is like we don't want to stop that. Um, I think we've gotten to the we got to the point in the 1960s with Ralph Nader and Unsafe at Any Speed, where he came out with a report saying, "Look, this is like a really, really dangerous technology and needs to be regulated." And that's how we got seatbelts. Um, I think the same thing is true for the internet now. I think where our book is um, suggests various ways to try to regulate it. Yeah. Tell us more about kind of the the upcode tweaks that you'd see around cyber espionage. There's almost nothing you can do about cyber espionage is the point. The point is, is that it is part of the upcode of the world. I mean, it's amazing. It is part of global upcode that that nations are allowed to spy on each other. In fact, it's almost encouraged. Um, and you can imagine why it might be encouraged. Um, that is, it's probably good for nations to know about each other's military intentions. Um, but whereas you might be able to get law enforcement um, to, um, you know, really crack down on cybercrime, it's very, very difficult to crack down on cyber espionage when the United States is the largest spying uh, country on the planet. But there was a suggestion there that um, there might be things to be done about um, economic espionage. Right. So so um, when we say espionage, we have to distinguish between, let's say, national security focused espionage and financial corporate or, um, you know, economic espionage. So the United States is the largest national security hacker on the planet, it, but it almost never engages in corporate espionage. That is, it doesn't actually hack into um, Chinese companies, let's say, and steal their blueprints. 
um, which is, you know, the, uh, China hacked into defense contractor and stole the entire blueprints for the F-35. Now, um, there had been talk, a, a, a talk between Xi and, um, and President Obama, and they signed an agreement limiting economic espionage. Um, and that worked out decently until the till Trump came into office and started a trade war with China. And then that the, the economic and political relations with China kind of fell apart. But there is room to cut down on espionage but through international agreements, because it isn't the case that financial espionage is legal. Um, so there are things we can do, but the core national security kind of hacking into leaders and their intelligence agencies to learn about the military and strategic intentions of country, that's never going away. I mean, your book basically has a kind of optimistic message. It, it, it You seem to be telling us, if I've interpreted you correctly, cyber war is it's going to be a kind of a simmering thing rather than a complete boiling over. Right. Yeah. So this, in a way, this kind of surprised me um, uh, just because of the hype associated with cyber war. But in a way, I think studying the history of war before I came to this project made me see things, I think, slightly differently because of that background. And so the first thing is just the technical challenges associated with trying to hack a, a, a digital infrastructure like the United States, which, which has so many different kinds of operating systems, so many different kinds of applications, so many different versions, so many different network configurations. It's very, very difficult um, um, to hack across platforms like that. Um, but, uh, um, uh, but, but, but secondly, and I think more importantly, um, you know, cyber cyber weapons are are not great weapons i mean you, you kind of can't, it's very hard to hold territory with cyber weapons it's very hard to blow things up with cyber weapons if you really want to blow things up you use bombs so when russia was going to invade um uh ukraine which it did people were saying oh no this is going to be the cyber war cyber war cyber war and i thought to myself why would you like burn exploits if you're russia when you actually have bombs um, and that's what happened, you know, like um, uh, Russia had been harassing Ukraine for seven years with cyber um, cyber attacks. And then when they really wanted to get real, when they really wanted to capture territory or decapitate Ukraine, they sent in the tanks, the troops, the planes, the bombs. Um, then that hasn't worked out so well for them, but um, it wasn't a uh, cyber war wasn't going to be the answer. So what I try to say is that cyber weapons are weapons of the weak. They are used by weak um, nations to harass stronger nations. But when nations really want to compete and go against each other, they use kinetic weapons like bombs and tanks. You make a very nice, I guess, analogy with peasant revolts or rebellions. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so um, the there's a, a a very well known book written by the anthropologist Jim Scott, um, James Scott, called Weapons of the Week. He's teach at Yale. Is a brilliant, um, brilliant person. Um, and what happened was he went uh, during his field work. He went um, in the late seventies to Indonesia to a rice village because he was really interested. Why do peasants not revolt more often? Um, 
And the Marxists had said, oh, they have false consciousness. They really buy into what their lords tell them. And what Jim Scott hypothesized was that, in fact, that's not at all the case. The peasants hate their lords and they strike back at them all the time, but in this kind of low level covert way, ways that he called weapons of the weak because it's too dangerous to strike at them directly. And I think that's what cyber weapons are. Cyber weapons are weapons of the weak. It's when you don't, when you can't afford to go all out on another adversary, but you really want to cause the other person pain, but not too much pain so that they retaliate and escalate. So I think, you know, the Russia, North Korea, Iran, they're the, they're the geopolitical peasants, so to speak. Um, uh, you know, Russia is actually a, a tricky situation because Russia is an intermediate um, power, which is, it has very strong kinetic capabilities, although much less than it did, um, and very strong um, cyber weapons. But um, ultimately, um, they, if they, if they wanted to attack an equal, um, they would probably go with cyber weapons. And if they really wanted to go into a large war, they would use kinetic weapons. I'd like to end with a kind of philosophical question. You're a professor of philosophy. So um, I, I would venture to say that a lot of our listeners and readers of Spectrum are people who are what you'd call solutionists. They gravitate towards technical fixes to problems. And I'm wondering how someone with that mindset could have his or her consciousness raised to to realize that maybe the solution isn't a technical solution. Yeah, so, um, uh, so I think that lawyers and engineers are like at root the same. We're both coders. Um, engineers are down coders, lawyers are up coders. We're both trying to solve problems using instructions um, and we hold ourselves to standards of rationality. Um, um, yeah, so that's that, that that's 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 what I would say. Well, that sounds good. Well, I should thank you, and um, I I hope I hope you have great success with this book because it certainly deserves to be read. That was Scott J. Shapiro speaking to us about his new book, Fancy Bear Goes Fishing. I'm David Schneider, and I hope you'll join us next time on Fixing the Future.